So we're in Romans. We finished Romans 11 last time, and we'll obviously launch off on Romans 12 tonight. And I'm hoping to get to Romans 13, because I want to hang out there for a little while. What we've been talking about up till now in this section of Romans is the relationship between the Gentiles who have received the Holy Spirit and are forming the nascent church and the Jews. One of the things that appears to be a problem is each group looks down upon the other. So what Paul has been talking about up until now is the place of the Jews in God's economy and the fact that even though There are Jews that have become enemies of the gospel so that the Gentiles can come in. They are still God's people. So 12 is a continuation of that conversation. And so 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. By the way, there are two translations of that. The other translation, which many of you have, and I suspect it's King Jimmy, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? And what we're leading into here is everybody figuring out where his place is in God's economy and doing it. So that will follow in just a minute. The first problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. So when it says present yourself as a living sacrifice, that's one of those things that, how shall we say, comes and goes as you live your life. In other words, there are going to be days when you're right there and you've given yourself up and so forth. There's going to be other days when you're not doing so well. So the idea of a living sacrifice does present a problem because it keeps crawling off the altar, as we all do. Then, of course, don't be conformed to this world. In other words, the world will lead you away from God. That's one of the things that it's designed to do. The way I describe it is the earth is designed to be a sorter, which sorts sheep from goats, Believers from unbelievers, however you want to describe that. And if the choice were not real and attractive, it would not be a choice. To use a stupid example, if I were to give you on one hand a cup of chocolate pudding, and on the other hand I'd go out in the backyard and get some of the dog's droppings and put it in the other one and say, all right, which one do you want? That wouldn't be a real choice because You'd look at the other one and say, why would I want that? Obviously, I want the chocolate pudding, even though they look similar. So that isn't a real choice. And to be presented with a choice like that doesn't give you any kind of a difficult decision to make. So in order for your decision for the kingdom of God and for Christ to be real, the alternative has to be attractive. It has to be something that is desirable. So when Paul here says, don't be conformed to the world, what he's saying is the world is designed to draw you away from God. If it wasn't designed to do that, there would be no decision to make, and everybody would just sort of waltz into the kingdom of God, sheep and goats, and never get separated. The comment was, 
with the current regime that we've got going on, with news media and so forth terrorizing people, that this world is right now not terribly attractive. And I will suggest that that may be part of what's going on. You are seeing the end result of where this world goes when left to its own devices. And the fact that you see it as not attractive is, I'm suggesting, something that God is probably doing for our benefit. But anyway, back to Paul. The idea here is that the world is designed to be attractive. I mean, God made it. But it's also designed to give you every opportunity to choose something other than him. And obviously, everybody here has chosen him. But if the choice were not legitimate and attractive, then the choice wouldn't mean anything. So do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And as I said, those of you who are in King James and derivatives, it will read what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That doesn't make sense to me. Because grammatically, if you're talking about the will of God, how could the will of God not be acceptable? So I read this according to my translation, which I kind of like better, that you may discern what is the will of God, comma, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, discerning the will of God, you are figuring out what is good, acceptable, and perfect, and such things then will be within the will of God. Verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Okay, now remember we started this off by saying one of the main themes of this letter is you've got dissent within the church, and specifically dissent between the Gentiles who have received the Holy Spirit and are looking for a place where they can read the books, and the Jews who do not have a belief in Messiah, and there's conflict between them. So the purpose of this section of the letter is to get everybody to back down, not think less of each other or more highly of yourself than you ought to. In fact, there was everybody here reads the Babylon Bee, right? If you don't, you should. And the one that I'm particularly thinking of has got a picture of a a millennial with a beard and all that kind of stuff, and saying, Calvinist says humbly that he's a terrible sinner. Uh, (laughs) So the idea that we take pride in our spiritual condition, or perhaps put it a different way, in our doctrinal positions, is one of the things that Paul is speaking against here. Verse 3 again. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, you are to use the faith that God has given you in order to look at yourself and come up with an honest evaluation. One of the things that people are really, 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 really good at is lying to themselves. The example, of course, is Mary's shoplifting is far, far worse than my lying. Far worse than my gossiping about Mary's shoplifting is Mary's shoplifting. I'm just telling everybody 
to watch out for Mary because she steals stuff. So the idea is we all have this tendency to lie to ourselves. And that's different than lying to each other. I mean, neither one of them is good. But what he's talking about here is don't lie to yourself. Verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Messiah, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So one of the things that is rampant in human society is to look at somebody else and be envious of what they do. Ooh, she's got a really good voice, or he's got a really good voice. I wish I had a voice like that, and actually I do, because I don't have a great voice. But the idea of being envious of somebody else's gift, that especially has to do with gifts that involve influence within the community. So if someone has a gift that gives him influence and status within the community, then other people have a tendency to envy that position and to envy that gift, even though it's not the gift that God gave you. And what you wind up doing is you have people who are operating outside of the gifts that God has given them for purposes of status and power. It's sort of God's Peter Principle. Everybody know what the Peter Principle is? You guys are too young. There was a management consultant back in the, I don't know, 70s, 60s, 70s, somewhere, that wrote a book. And his last name was Peter. And the Peter Principle is, as you're working your way through a bureaucracy or a job, what happens is you get promoted for doing a good job. And so you keep getting promoted for doing a good job until you finally get promoted into a job that you're not competent to handle. In other words, wow, you did a really good job as a stock clerk. Ha! Came in every day, cheerful, got everything right, organized the stock room. Boy, are you a great stock clerk. I'm going to make you the shipping manager. And what you have is you have organizations with what was described as people who have been Peter principled out. They rise to the level of their incompetence. And that's what bureaucracies do. And I will gently suggest that we've got a whole bunch of people in government that are Peter principled out. And once you hit that level of incompetence, you don't get fired. You just sort of stay there doing a mediocre job. But you don't get promoted anymore. So what Paul is saying here is figure out what gifts God has given you Use those gifts and be content within the body to be the bearer of that particular gift. And don't look to covet somebody else's gift because you see that that other gift gives you more status in the community. And the other thing is, and he does this, I want to say in Corinthians, everybody an eye is everybody a foot, you know, that kind of thing. His whole point here is the same point he makes, as I say, I believe it's in Corinthians, that in order for the body to function, you need all of those gifts, and they need to be operating in people who are good at them. So if everybody wants to rise to the level of mayor, 
pretty soon you got nobody out there collecting the garbage. And although collecting the garbage is perhaps not a high-status job, it is really important. And so what Paul is saying is your piece of the economy here is important because God gave you that gift. And then he lists a bunch of gifts. Verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. So what he's talking about here are character traits that everyone can exercise regardless of the particular gift that he has been given. The best example that I can think of, I remember early on in the Army, where, no, I wasn't in the Army when we still rode horses, but it was close. Colonel said, all right, you need to understand that if somebody gives you a job to go shovel out the stables, don't think that that job is beneath your dignity. Go out there and be the best stable shoveler in the unit. Whatever God has given you, go do it and try and be the best one of those that you possibly can. And that's what Paul is saying about these general characteristics. Don't be slothful. Be fervent in spirit. Those kinds of things. They're general characteristics that anybody can exercise regardless of what gift he has been given. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, we need to talk about that. There's several things going on here. First off, everybody who is anybody in the Bible has enemies. Read the Psalms. Everybody who is anybody in the Bible has enemies. And there are different sorts of enemies. So within a body like the church, you can have somebody who can't stand you or conversely. That would qualify biblically as an enemy. What he's not talking about is when the Midianites come in and try and steal all your grain, that you're to sit there quietly with your hands over your tummy and say, oh, bless you. In other words, what we're talking about in context here is relationships within the church, relationships within the synagogue. And what happens in churches and synagogues and school boards and everything else is people rub each other the wrong way and they become enemies. And so what Paul is saying here is, to the best of your ability, try not to make any. Notice he says, to the best of your ability, try not to make any enemies. He doesn't say, don't ever make an enemy. He's also saying, don't go about laying traps for your enemy within the congregation. In other words, don't go gossiping about them. Don't go cursing them. Don't go trying to turn other people against them. 
don't sow discord within the body because you don't like somebody. This is not talking about warfare. This is not talking about the Philistines coming up the pass. This is talking about within the community. You're trying to maintain peace. And Yeshua, as we talked about last time, loved us while we were yet sinners and gave himself for us. And consequently, he is perfectly capable of loving the Jews while they are enemies of the gospel. 1221. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil but good. So what he's saying is don't let evil get you down, but overcome evil with good. So now on to chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This one has been grossly misused by much of the church, especially in the United States, to avoid politics. So we're going to unpack this sucker in the next half hour, and I'm going to suggest to you that that understanding is completely incorrect. And if anybody wants a link to this, send me an email. One of my sources for this, his name is Doug Wilson, he's a Calvinist, unfortunately, runs a big church in Idaho. His blog is Blog and May Blog, and he's very, very bright. He graduated one of the service academies, I don't know whether he's Army or Navy, but a very bright guy. And he's been writing on the subject of the lockdown and all of that kind of stuff for a while now. And he had an excellent article three or four days ago where he said some things in a way that I had not thought of them that was very good. So I'm going to read chapter 13, verse 1 through 7, and then I'm going to come back and talk about it. So let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. There it is. Now, first off, there is a difference between good and lawful. You can tell they're spelled differently, right? Good is defined by who? God. Lawful is defined by the legislature. So there are laws that are not good, but are lawful. Everybody here is pro-life, so you have a law which permits abortion at any stage of pregnancy. That is lawful. It is not good. Notice Paul doesn't say anywhere in this little screed anything about obeying the law. What he says is do good. Everybody see that distinction. It's an important distinction because legislatures and governments established by men 
very, very often become corrupt and go astray. So what Paul is not telling you is to obey every order, edict, and law that anybody who happens to have gotten himself in a seat of power happens to say. What he's saying is, do good. Good as being defined by God. That's sort of thing one. So right there you have destroyed the very common belief that anything any government official tells you to do is ordained by God and you got to do it. The idea that whatever jerk has gotten himself to the top of the heap is automatically to be obeyed is not biblical. And furthermore, the people who set up the United States were extremely biblically literate and most of them extremely godly men. They didn't have any problem whatsoever rebelling against the king. The standard that Paul is lifting up here is not absolute obedience to government, it is doing good. And if you behave and do good, then the magistrate is no danger to you. Well, we know that isn't always true. But the general principle is, if you walk orderly according to the word of God, you should be able to stay out of trouble. But you will not always be able to stay out of trouble. And in fact, you have a duty sometimes to God to get into trouble in the case where you have an unjust government and an evil government. So that's sort of thing one. As you're reading through this, understand that Paul is speaking rather precisely. Thing two, the synagogue was a civil arm of the Roman Empire. It was the deal, if you will, that the synagogue would collect taxes from its members, would discipline its members, etc., and would then forward those taxes and conduct that discipline to the empire. So what the empire said is, you guys have got a community that has its own governing structure. As near as we can tell, the way you have set yourself up and govern yourselves is no threat to the empire. Therefore, you do have authority to discipline the members of your community. Remember, Paul gets beaten with 39 stripes several times. So you do have authority to discipline your people. And by the way, since you got them all, you go ahead and collect the taxes and forward them to us. So the governing authorities here we're talking about may very well be the synagogue as opposed to the empire in context. And in that context, one would assume that the governing body of the synagogue, which is theoretically operating according to the law of Moses, would not have a problem with someone who is doing good according to the word of God. So when Paul says the governing authorities, which in this case may very well be the local synagogue, they are not going to be upset with you if you are walking orderly according to the Torah. So put that into context also. Now, let's talk a bit about government. When is human government instituted? And by whom? After the flood. And I will read it to you. It's in Genesis 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. 
But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply. So what God has said is, I am instituting here human government on the earth. And specifically what he's talking about, obviously, is capital punishment. And as we go through the Torah, we have places where God says, all right, folks, I want you to establish judges. I want you to establish justice, and you need to establish judges to handle judgment among each other. So human government is set up by God in the Torah. And the initial government that's set up is priests and judges. Eventually we get kings, priests, and judges. So what God is saying to man here is I am giving you the ability and the responsibility to govern yourselves. Now, fast forward several thousand years, and what the founders of the Declaration of Independence said is, who is the ultimate sovereign in the United States? We the people. In other words, the people maintain ultimate sovereignty within the United States. And it specifically says in our founding document, if the government that we establish here becomes corrupt or not useful, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. The Colorado Constitution says exactly the same thing. I read it last night. I sat down and read the first several articles of the Colorado Constitution. And the Colorado Constitution says the people of Colorado are absolutely sovereign. The Constitution of the United States says the same thing. The people are sovereign. And if you read in the Bill of Rights, what it says is these are the things that government may do. These are the things that government may not do. And everything not specifically listed in this document is reserved either to the states or to the people. The people are sovereign. And the people have the right and the responsibility if the government becomes destructive of the aims that the people have to alter or abolish that government. What I'm saying is governments are instituted by God. That's what Paul says here. God gave us the right and the responsibility to govern ourselves. That comes from God. Paul is talking about doing right and doing good. Definitions of right and good come from God. So at the point where the actions of a government become destructive of the aims, the rights, and the privileges of the people, it is both the duty and the right of the people to alter or abolish it. Now, let's talk, for example, about our little coffee shop down in, what, Castle Rock? What we're talking about, for those out in Cyberland, is Colorado's is on lockdown. There's an executive order saying you can't open a restaurant. Mother's Day, this coffee shop down, I think, in Castle Rock, maybe Colorado Springs, but south of here, opened up and had the place packed on Mother's Day and said, enough is enough. We're not doing this. The government then, on Monday, when the bureaucrats came to work, I mean, they couldn't be bothered to do anything on Sunday because they don't work on Sunday. 
So on Monday, when the bureaucrats came to work, what they did is they pulled the coffee shop's business license. So now what's happened is the actions of the state have damaged this business. The Colorado Constitution specifically says that you have a right to property. So what Colorado has done by executive fiat is destroyed the property of this restaurant owner. So now what's going to happen next is that restaurant owner is going to go into federal court and sue the state for violation of its own constitution. Everything that's happening here is exactly in concert with Romans 13. This restaurant owner, I don't know if he's a Christian, I don't know anything about him, but what he's doing is exactly what Romans 13 contemplates. He's looking at the action of the state, and he's saying, wait a minute, the people are sovereign, we're not putting up with this, so I'm not going to obey it. I'm going to ignore that law, and I'm going to go about doing business as I would normally do business on my own property. The state then took action, and so now he's going to turn around and go to court. In fact, there's a barber in Michigan, and he says, heck with this. I'm going to open my barber shop. The only thing that's going to close me is if they tase me and drag me out of here or Jesus Christ comes back again. I'm quoting. So the governor sent an order to shut him down. A judge just threw it out of court. The point I'm making is these people are not lawless. These people are, in fact, acting in accordance with the law. The guy didn't run around and shoot everybody up. Or he just says, no, I'm going to do business. And the state then comes in and says, no, you're not. Fine, we're going to court. It's like that gal in Texas who opened her hair salon. Same thing. These people are all acting properly according to Romans 13. Because what they understand is what the hierarchy of authority is. And the highest authority is God. God gave people the right to govern themselves. Both the United States and Colorado, in our case, have written in their constitution that the people are ultimately absolutely sovereign. And cutting hair is not evil. Hair seems to be a big one. A couple of them doing hair, a couple of them serving breakfast. We're just doing business. We're not out there boosting cars. We're not out there hijacking people. We're not out there committing rape or murder. We are simply going about our business peaceably. And nobody's forcing the customers to come. And the example that my preacher up in Idaho gave is there's a difference between ignoring a government edict and disobeying. These people are ignoring the government edict. And the example he uses, say you're walking down the sidewalk and you've got Yosef in the front yard behind a fence. And Yosef is running on you, yap, 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 as you're walking down the sidewalk. If you ignore that yappy little dog, which is the government, you have not sinned. And that's what Paul is saying here. You've got a responsibility to pay your taxes. You've got a responsibility to give deference to people who are electing. In fact, if you remember the lady in Texas with the hair salon, was being lectured by the judge, and the judge says, you are being extremely selfish, and on and on and on, and she says, sorry, judge, I disagree. I am not going to close. Feeding my children is more important than your law. She did not win at the moment, but she won within 24 hours. 
because Cruz and Sarah Palin both went into her shop to get a haircut. So the point is, what these people are doing is they are doing good. And one of the things that this lady said as she was standing in front of the judge is, Judge, I respect this court. I am not trying to do anything flagrantly dishonest. I do respect the court, but I'm not going to obey you. And Paul says, give honor to whom it's due. Judge, you're duly constituted. I respect your role as a judge. I'm just not going to obey you because I think your order is not legal. The comment was using, for example, the Battle of Britain, where when you heard the sirens, you were supposed to go down in the basement and turn all the lights off to, to avoid attracting bombs. Lights in your windows attract bombs. Okay. And they're using a similar argument with respect to the virus. And what I am saying is the people are sovereign. The people get to decide at what point the cure here is more destructive than the potential of the disease. And so I'm not talking about a mob. I'm not talking about you know, getting pitchforks and heading up to City Hall or anything like that. I'm simply saying what we're seeing is people looking at this as, as members of the body politic and saying, this makes no sense. I am not going to obey it. Now, what you have then is you have a contest of who's going to prevail. So you've got the people who say, oh, this is terribly deadly, and if you do that, everybody's going to die. And you've got the others who are saying, if we do that, we're all going to starve to death. And what you now have is a political contest, which is also in accordance with Romans 13. Just as I'm presenting the case very strongly for the people who are resisting because I'm sympathetic with them. But I also completely understand the other side of the argument. And what that becomes then is a political argument, and what it is right now is a bureaucratic fiat. So what we have is the government by fiat has set this up, and the body politic is starting to say, wait a minute, we don't care what your experts say, this is too draconian. We can't live this way. We can't live with this. We would rather take the chance of perhaps contracting the disease and perhaps dying rather than starving to death because we can't open our businesses. And that's a political question. And since in the United States the people are sovereign, that will be decided in the court of public opinion and eventually at the ballot box. But according to Romans 13, it is all legitimate. The Texas hair salon or the little restaurant in Castle Rock or the barber is not going against the will of God, which is what much of the Sunday church would have you believe. That if you open up your restaurant, you are going against the will of God. And what I'm saying is that's not true. You're going against the will of the government. That is true. But you, as a member of the sovereign, which is all the people, have a right and a responsibility to do that. Now, as I say, if you wind up on the losing end of the political argument, you may wind up in jail. That's certainly a risk. But what I'm saying is, Romans 13 is not your problem here. You will hear that taught. You will hear that anybody who resists any aid by the government is violating the will of God. And what I'm saying is, no, he's violating the will of the government, but there is a mechanism there for the sovereign to exercise 
the ultimate power, which is what the sovereign has, which is what the people have. It's written into our foundational documents. And as I say, the question then becomes, is my little coffee shop going to be filled up because everybody is tired of this stuff and just wants to get together and doesn't care about, which is what happened. So what you see is the sovereign, the people, are sort of bubbling under the surface, waiting for someone to step up and open a coffee shop. And when that happens, what you see is the reactions that you're getting, which tells you that the sovereign, the people, are not happy with what's going on. But that's a political question. That is not a God question. Go back to the American Revolution. The American colonists were under a king that they thought was not serving their best interests. And they decided, okay, we're done with this king. We're going to set up our own government. There's no problem with that in Romans 13. The problem becomes practical. Can you win your revolution? Can you get enough people on your side to turn out the government? The fact that there are political upheavals that happen periodically is not contrary to Romans 13. That's what I'm saying. And what the teaching in many churches is, you got to do whatever they say because of Romans 13. And what I'm saying is that is a misunderstanding of the passage. Because remember, we started off, and what Paul is talking about is what is right and what is good. And who decides what is right and what is good? God does. And God has made it simple enough that we can all look at what the magistrate is doing and we can compare the magistrate's actions and orders against what is right and what is good, and then we can decide to disregard them and perhaps replace the magistrate. That is perfectly biblical. As I said, I wanted to spend a bunch of time here because there's a lot of misunderstanding. And to recap in about two words or less, God is the one who established human government. God is the one who decides what's right and wrong. In our founding documents in the United States, the people are explicitly listed as the ultimate sovereign, and that's the same in Colorado. So the fact that we are the ultimate sovereign and government is established by God gives us the right and the responsibility when that government becomes destructive of the way God would have us live to alter or abolish that government, and certainly we don't have any duty to obey it. Now, there may be political and criminal consequences to that. In other words, if you decide to open your store and nobody ever comes to your store and so forth, you might wind up in the jug. That may be a consequence, and that's a risk you run. And these people who are opening their businesses are running that risk, and so far, they seem to be winning. Shut